you join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think this is the fourth or fifth message in this chapter. We're going to finish today just with two verses, verses 39 and 40. Paul brings his instructions about marriage and singleness to a conclusion, and he writes, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier, literally the word is blessed, and she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Leon Morris, who was a great Australian theologian, wrote this in his commentary. He said, in marriage, as in all else, the Christian must be mindful that he acts as a member of Christ's body. Whether married or whether single, we need to realize that our decisions affect the body of Christ. And so when choosing to marry, the best thing for you and for the body of Christ is, as Paul says here, marry only in the Lord. Marry only in the Lord. I want to unpack that in a few moments. But I want to drive home that throughout, sorry, Throughout, I can't say anything, but anyway, um, throughout this epistle, Paul is writing, informed by the message of the cross. He's concerned about living under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and particularly when it comes to chapter 7, that doesn't change. He is addressing questions they wrote to him about marriage. There were some who believed that since they are now saved, that they should separate from their spouses um, and be fully devoted to the Lord. And just as a side note, of course that is wrong, but you can be fully devoted to the Lord whether single or married. The issue is being distracted from certain service ministry to the Lord if you're married. There were those who were teaching that if your spouse is an unbeliever, you should end that marriage because in the Old Testament, Jews were not to marry pagans, which was true. But Paul writes and says, no, if you are married to an unbeliever, then you do the best you can to make it work. Throughout this 40 verses, Paul has really been very strong about the blessing of being single because of the present distress, and we looked at that That was something that was historically unique, a historical unique circumstance. And Paul is saying that in light of what is happening right now, you're probably better off not getting married. This is not something for all the church age. He's answered many questions about marriage, but there is one that he has not dealt with yet, and that is the area of being a widow. He's touched on it earlier, but here he drives it home and says in verse 39, a 
wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married, whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So Paul is going to conclude this instruction on marriage and singleness by addressing those who are widowed. And out of this comes two major things you want to look at. And the first one, briefly, is Paul's inspired intention. Why does he even write this chapter, and why is he writing this to these widows? And we see that in verse 40. Paul says, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, that is, as a widow. And then he says this, and I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. I think when Paul wrote that, his tongue was stuck to his cheek. It seems to me that as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to see this next week in chapter 8, that this church was very arrogant. That you had people here who were super spiritual. Like they were so spiritual they didn't need the Apostle Paul, and he addresses that in 2 Corinthians. And it seems to me that there were those who were claiming they had the Spirit of God and therefore listen to them when it comes to advice about marriage and singleness. And after all these verses, Paul says, hey, I think I also have the Spirit of God. He's being a bit satirical here, but he wants to make a point that, listen, listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. I have your best interest at heart. He says, I think it's fine for a widow to remarry as long as they are in the Lord. But in my judgment, they're happier if they remain. Why was that? Again, I think because of the present distress. I think the context of this was. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul doesn't contradict himself. In 1 Timothy 5, he says, let the younger widows marry. And so Paul is writing something different there. Why is that? Because of the present distress. Because of the present distress, it's better if they don't remarry. Now, keep in mind that these really spiritual people who are saying, if you're married to an unbeliever, divorce them. And now that you're Christians, singleness is to be the priority. Paul is really concerned in all of this that people's consciences not be bound. He said in verse 23, you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. He doesn't mean that in a socio-political way, economic way. What he means is simply this, that now that Christ is your Lord and Master, make sure your decisions are made under his lordship, exercising your freedom to please him. Paul is saying, if there are some widows here, who are being pressured to marry. Why would they be pressured to marry? Well, one reason might be, because of what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that when it comes to dealing with widows, who are widows indeed in the church, those who have no family to take care of them, the church is to take care of them, but the first protocol is their family. And so family members perhaps are saying to Granny, you should remarry. And underneath that is not so much they're concerned about Granny being alone as much as they're concerned about their bank account being emptied. And I suppose Paul is saying, hey, 
I also have the Spirit of God. Listen to me. Don't feel forced into a marriage. Whether you're a married, whether you're a widow, or whether you are a single person, the whole thing applies. Do not give your freedom in Christ. Don't allow others to force you into your mold. Paul was concerned about the well-being of these church members. He writes very pastorally, and he says, I want you to be happy. I want you to be blessed. And so therefore, he says, hear my counsel. And by the way, if you are a Christian, guess what? You too have the Spirit of God. So Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, if we don't have the Spirit, we're none of His. But if we are believers, therefore we have the Spirit of God, and Paul will develop that in chapter 14 of Romans and say that because we have the Spirit of God, we are also able to counsel one another. So a church membership that is filled with Christians is filled with people who have the Spirit of God, and therefore we can speak helpfully into one another's lives. My wife and I were somewhere this week, and her phone rang, and a young, young mom in the church was calling her and asking her for some advice. And I thought, this is great. This is how it works. We're a church body. We're a family. You see people who have done something. They've raised kids. They've been married. You need help. Go to them. They, too, have the Spirit of God. Always concerned about the well-being of this church. And so he gives them counsel. The only thing I want to say about verse 40, I know we haven't done, we're going to do with verse 39 in a moment, is simply this, is that the church does need to be filled with those who have the Spirit of God and are able to advise others. But make sure that our advice is biblical and that it is Christ-centered. There's a big movement called the biblical counseling movement, and I'm all for it. But I do think oftentimes... There is a lot, there's not as much Christ-centered counseling as there is biblical counseling. And what I mean by that is this. You have people who kind of chapter and verse you to death. Do this, don't do that. But if you don't bring them to Christ, then it's just moralism. Throughout this whole chapter, Paul is giving advice, and his biggest concern here is them taking this advice under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, in verse 39, Paul gives some inspired instructions. In this verse, he says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Now, understand that is a general principle. In Romans chapter 7, and verse 2, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Paul is simply stating the first principle that when people are married, it is until death, right? I was reflecting on this this week, and when I've done marriage ceremonies in the past, and you say, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health, for better, for worse, there's a context to all of that, usually in the couple's mind. For, for, for richer or poorer, for some in their context might mean you have a few months where things are tough, but poorer might mean employment and to complete poverty, but those vows are to be fulfilled. In sickness and in health, 
It might be the sickness of a man flu. It might be a serious death-bringing illness. For better, for worse. It might mean a rough patch in your marriage. It might mean some huge sin that has to be forgiven. But the principle is that a marriage it binds people to their covenant for as long as the other one lives. It's until death parts us. Paul's already dealt with exceptions here. Jesus dealt with exceptions in Matthew 5, Matthew 19. That's not Paul's point here. He's saying, here's the general principle. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. And again, Paul is allowing a freedom here. She's free to be married to whom she wishes. But there's a limitation on it. The limitation of those last four words, only in the Lord. Paul doesn't say that she is free to marry and then give a bunch of stipulations about who she can marry, except for one. The person must be in the Lord. He adds a non-negotiable because an inspired requirement and restriction that is, if they marry, they must marry those who are Christians. I want to talk about that for a few moments before we close. As I mentioned some weeks ago, when Paul talked about marriage, he's talking about marriage under the shadow of the cross. That when a couple marry, that the Lord is to be front and center. And if one does not marry... They are also to be undivided in their devotion to the Lord. When Paul says here that widows who marry must marry those who are only in the Lord, is it fair to extrapolate that, that whoever, whoever marries, they must marry those who are in the Lord? Christians? If it's your first marriage, if it's your second marriage, it's to be somebody who is in the Lord. And I don't mean second marriage to the first one you're already in. I mean, the first time you get married, you marry someone who's a Christian, and that person dies, and if there is a biblical divorce and you're allowed to remarry, you marry someone only in the Lord. You marry a Christian. When that stipulation is ignored, then we complicate our lives. I want to share a few things about this marrying only in the Lord, marrying those who are Christians. First of all, when Paul wrote his epistles 143 times, he talked about being in Christ, or he talked about being in him or in the Lord 143 times. Paul's description of a Christian is someone who is in the Lord. That's the identity. And Paul is saying that when you're considering marriage, the number one factor in that is whether or not they identify as Christians, whether they identify with Christ. And we need to understand that there are things worse than not having a spouse, like having the wrong one. Like having a spouse who is not in the Lord. And I'm not speaking here about a couple that got married as unbelievers and one of them becomes a Christian, the other doesn't. That is hard. 
If I'm talking about a Christian person here, like this widow that Paul assumes is a member of the church who's a Christian, Paul says, you're free to marry who you choose, but make sure they're in the Lord. And as lonely as you feel, and as needy as you may seem you are, do not compromise on this. You must marry someone who is a Christian. And Christians marry. They need to marry someone who has evidence that they are in the Lord. They haven't just ticked the religious box Christian. When you're looking for your child's spouse, then you want to look for someone who is devoted to Jesus Christ. You want to look for someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who loves the gospel of Christ. Someone who loves the church of Jesus Christ. The greatest wedding gift parent you can ever give your child is to help them, if they're going to get married, to find somebody who loves Christ. You can give them a house. If they marry the wrong person, who cares? It's not all that complicated. Paul says marriage in the Lord is it's too important. It's a non-negotiable. It must not be compromised because of various pressures. There's a TV show that has been on in our home a couple of times that I have been forced to watch called Indian Matchmaking. Have you seen it? Indian Matchmaking. And you have this lady who's in Mumbai. She's apparently an expert. And she gets these couples together. And it's amazing. And I've been in India before and read the newspaper where they have these adverts for looking for spouses. Looking for someone of a certain kind of education. A certain bank account. And those kind of things. And uh, the point of, this, of the show is that this lady helps you find the right person and they keep talking about a soulmate, whatever that is. Paul says, here's the one thing you look for. It's not the bank account. It's not the career. It's not the education. It is, are they in the Lord? And not just ticking a box, do they have evidence they love Christ above all things? I was thinking this week, over 21 years ago, I preached a funeral for Glennis Cable. And I remember it like it was yesterday. There's a young woman here, my wife and I know. And she was saying to Jill afterwards how much she loved Glennis. And talked about this godly woman. And she said to my wife, she said, I really want that, but not the cost of my marriage. That she knew that if she was going to pursue Christ as Glennis pursued Christ in this young woman's marriage, it was going to cause a major heartache. That was 21 years ago. And she still hasn't paid the price. And raised kids. 
who don't know Christ. There are things worse than not being married, like marrying the wrong person. You marry someone who is in the Lord. You marry someone who loves Christ, who loves his gospel, who loves his church. Because the fallout can be devastating. Paul is not at all trying to bind anyone's conscience here except for the one thing, only in the Lord. Paul loved these people. Paul had a shepherd's heart. And he says, please hear me. You're free to marry anyone you choose. But make sure they're in the Lord. Not that you're just a member of a church and been baptized, but they have an evidence they love Christ. Second, pay heed to those whom the Lord has placed in your life for guidance when you're deciding about marriage. But living in a broken world means there are a few guarantees. Nevertheless, the scripture does provide comfort that in a multitude of counselors, there is what? Safety. It's fair to assume that the emphasis in this passage is upon godly counselors. Listen to those who love you, to those who love the Lord, to those who love the gospel, to those who love the church. Parents, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. I know I sound like a broken record, but please hear this. Please be striving to be such counselors to your children that they'll actually listen to you. That you have a track record where your children can look at you and say, he's not perfect, and I've seen him fall, but I've seen the gospel in his life. I've seen that he loves Christ. I see he loves the gospel. I see he loves the word. I see he loves the church. Those are the kind of parents kids are going to say, I don't like the advice, but I'm going to listen to it. Church member, Let's be that kind of a church member, one that is a godly counselor. Let us learn truth and soak ourselves in scripture and be before the Lord in prayer and pursue a life of undivided devotion to the Lord and therefore be in a helpful position and disposition to help others who desire to marry and help them to marry in the Lord. I was encouraged this week as I was speaking to someone in a counseling matter and they said that two individuals in this church spoke to them about their marital situation and they said, I didn't like it, but I knew they were right and I did it. Thank God for that. Christian, guard your heart when it comes to marriage. You only want to marry those who are in the Lord. Because thirdly, if you don't marry in the Lord, then that's a problem for all of us. Again, as Leon Morris so well said, in marriage as in all else, the Christian must be mindful that he acts as a member of Christ's body. Our choices affect one another. Without belaboring the point, we need to appreciate that whether single or married, 
Each church member has a responsibility to help each church member to live like we are in the Lord. Each of us has a vital interest in helping marriages to be and to behave as if they are in, as if they are in the Lord. We need to help one another before the problems come. We need to help one another after the problems come. We need to hold one another accountable and lovingly confront and investing time in helping the wounded and coming alongside and helping injured spouses to run the race, as we heard last Sunday night. If you're single, you share in this responsibility. Not being married does not disqualify you from speaking to the lives of married people. In fact, sometimes single people have far more insight because they're objective. They see the scriptures and they say, that's not lining up with this. And they're not so close to the woods, they can't see the trees. They're close to the wood, whatever that saying is. Fourth, this is so important. If you're married in the Lord, and stay married in the Lord. Stay married, yes. But stay in the Lord. When I married as a, I think I was 23 when I got married. I had all the answers. I remember being at a bachelor party with some friends, uh, Joe, Joe Paradox, who's getting married. And everybody at that, in, in the wedding party was married except for me. And I remember that night just waxing eloquent with advice. And I remember these other guys kind of snickering like, what is wrong with this guy? He's never been married. I'd read a bunch of books because I was planning to get married. Jill didn't know that, but I was planning on getting married. (laughs) I'd read all these books and I had all these answers. It didn't take me long after I got married to realize that what I had read was true but it would require a lot of work. It's hard. It's hard work. It's blessed work, and it's not all hard. It requires hard work to walk with the Lord, to help your spouse to walk with the Lord. A relationship with the Lord must be nurtured. Otherwise, it will atrophy. I learned that when I was in the hospital a couple of years ago. To stay moving. To stay moving so I wouldn't just shut down. As Christians, we need to stay in the Word. Stay walking in the Scriptures. Stay in prayer. Otherwise, we're going to shut down. And that marriage that was just so bright on that wedding day, and there were wonderful hymns sung, and there was a sermon preached, and there was, a, there, was a, there was a joy, there was, there was speeches made that were honoring Christ, and there were vows made about serving Christ. All that then fades. Because you haven't done the hard work. Staying in the Word. And I'm sure this has never happened to you, but on a Sunday... The last place you wanted to go was church with your spouse because you had a fight. So you think you're just going to just pack it in, stay home. But you know what it's like. You say, you know what, I'm a Christian. 
And therefore, we need to work through this. And maybe you get it right before you get in the car, or maybe you don't. Maybe you had the sounds of silence all the way to church. But you come and you gather. And you hear the word of God, and the Spirit of God convicts you, and then you make right. Do the hard thing. I was recently studying Ecclesiastes and was reminded of Ecclesiastes 4. In fact, I preached Gareth and Carrie Franks when they were married. I preached from Ephesians 4 that asked me to, that two are better than one. And Solomon writes about community. The reality is, when God brings a man and a woman together in marriage, Christian man and woman together in marriage, then those two are to be helping one another to grow in Christ. If you're married in the Lord, make sure you nurture that. and You stay married in the Lord. And finally, if you did not marry in the Lord, you can still serve the Lord. Maybe you were a Christian and you did wrong. You married an unbeliever, and I think it's wrong. I think it's, I think it's a sinful act. But now you're in that marriage. And Paul wouldn't tell you, divorce him. Or maybe you were both unbelievers, and now you're, you're a Christian, and you're in that situation, and you didn't marry in the Lord. You can still love the Lord. You can still serve the Lord. My pastor tells a story when he moved to Milford, Ohio with his young family. They were neighbors of a man named Melvin Adams, Melvin and Josephine Adams. And Melvin, I knew Melvin as, a, as the church mechanic when I knew him. I didn't know the whole background story. A couple of times he took me fishing, Stone Lick Lake, and fishing for bluegill. Nice, sweet man, but he wasn't always like that, I found out. When the Keens moved in next to him, he was a a drunk who would spend a paycheck every week on booze. And his wife, Josephine, who was a Christian, she stuck it out. One day, God moved this pastor right next to the house of Melvin Adams. He led him to Christ, and his life was transformed. Not every story has that happy ending. But I can tell you a lot of Happy wives, a lot of happy husbands with unbelieving spouses who've decided, you know what? They're going to be devoted to the Lord. Let this church help you in that. Marriage, in a real sense, is not all that complicated. It's God's good gift that finds its fulfillment in the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians chapter 5. The good news about our marriage to our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, is that he remains committed to his bride, so much so that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Never. We're guilty of infidelity before our Savior. We play with the world. We have our idols. Yet Christ said, I've laid down my life for my bride And I'm going to bring her through. Jesus came to secure his bride. He gave his life for his bride. 
And he took back his life for his bride. Now he lives to purify his bride. It's a glorious thought. The whole issue of marriage that Paul has talked about in 1 Corinthians 7 and in depth in Ephesians chapter 5 is all predicated upon the relationship that Jesus Christ the groom has with his bride, the church. I was thinking about this this week. If you're single and maybe you'll never be married, and I want to say this, I would no more pity you than I repeat, pity the Lord Jesus Christ who is single. But actually, that's not quite true. Jesus Christ does have a bride, and it's the church. And if you're in Christ, whether you're married or single, you belong to that bride. You're in the Lord. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. With that kind of devoted love to us, how can we do anything else but say, here's my heart, here's my life, as we sang about, my soul, my all. We have, a lo- we have a lovely groom. We have a glorious Savior. Whether you're married or single, if you're in him, we have all we need. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved your bride, laid down your life for her, took it back again to justify her. You intercede today to purify her. Oh, Jesus, purify us, we pray. Amen.